Well, welcome to another edition of the Bottom Line Show. I'm Roger Marsh. Typically, this is the day. It's Tuesday. So typically, this is the day we refer to on the program as Super Tuesday. Well, today is a different kind of Super Tuesday because it's also October 31st. And that means it's Reformation Day. And this is a huge day in the church, whether you are Protestant, those who protested against the Catholic Church by following the teachings of Martin Luther, or whether or not you are part of the Catholic Church, uh, maintaining to uphold the uh, vision and standards as the quote-unquote one true church, and, uh, and, and then realizing that some of what Martin Luther said actually made a little bit of sense, and it did alter the Catholic Church a little bit. But you, know, you do have, I mean, we don't often think about this enough, but we do have two kind of warring factions, if you will, in what we call the church today. There is the, uh, the Protestant side, sometimes referred to as the de denominational side, sometimes also referred to as the evangelical side. And then you have the Catholic side, which typically is a reference to what people in Roman Catholicism would call the church. This is the true church. This is the bride of Christ. We found it on the uh, confession of Peter and everybody else who's claiming to have that knowledge and information. Well, can, they could can just go pound sand. Now, I realize it's also Halloween, and we've not gotten into, for many years here on this program, have not gotten into the formal conversation on air about do you celebrate Halloween, do you let the kids go trick-or-treating, that type of stuff. And I'll be honest with you, part of the reason why we haven't done that is because y'all don't call in. <laughs> I mean, that's, I mean, you'd rather win books or movie tickets, so that's fine. We don't. This isn't the forum for having a heated discussion as to whether or not children should dress up on Halloween. But or whether we should even celebrate Halloween. I made the contention, having spent half my life in a Lutheran church, that it is possible to, quote-unquote, celebrate Halloween, but if you celebrate it as All Hallowed Eve, anticipating, of course, All Saints Day on November 1st, where we remember all the saints who've gone before us, and All Hallowed Eve, where we basically turn it into a celebration of good over evil, and if you want to have, you know, good characters and evil characters and, you know, depict that and act that out, that's perfectly fine the way I see it I uh, didn't always see it that way but uh, you know when as a father of young children and their mom wanted the kids to dress up and go walk around and you know solicit candy from the neighbors and I was no holding on to I, I think it's dark it's evil it's terrible there are some parts of Halloween that are dark and evil and terrible there's no question about it but with regard to us as Christians I think we, we sometimes miss the greater good conversation if we don't look at a cultural holiday like this and ask the question, how are we going to commemorate this, acknowledge this, or ignore it? Because when you look at the statistics, the number of people who celebrate Halloween in the culture is staggeringly large. As a matter of fact, um, Halloween now ranks second in terms of overall expenditures for the holiday uh, only to Christmas. That means that more people spend more money for Halloween than Valentine's Day, spend more money than that for Mother's Day, uh, Father's Day, no one cares. But I mean, you know, you get the idea. If people are putting this much into the costuming and the partying, and I mean, the, the, the places that have those Halloween haunts, if you will, that now begin, I think, was it the major amusement park chain? We don't mention their name here, but you know who they are in Anaheim and Orlando and Paris and Tokyo. Uh, they start their Halloween haunt days, I think, right after Labor Day. They, they do it for two full months. There's another theme park here in Southern California, you know, the ones with the berries, and they've done a Halloween haunt that goes on for a couple of months. They've done it for years. As a matter of fact, a pastor friend of mine 
this is years ago. I, 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 he may be with the Lord now. I'm not sure. He and his wife both met when he was working as a magician, as it were. He was did the Vegas circuit, did the nightclub circuit, and she was his lovely assistant. And they fell in love and got married. And someone witnessed to him, and he wound up becoming a pastor. And when I first started working in radio ad sales, he and his wife purchased time on our radio station. They wound up doing a variety show. And they were on for like three hours every Sunday night. It was wildly popular. Church had about 40, 50 members. But I remember him telling me that he actually, um, part of the reason he was able to afford doing his church ministry was because Knott's Berry Farm would hire him every October. He would work that month and, you know, didn't let people know <laughs> he was a pastor. And this congregation knew and they prayed for him every night. But he could do the sleight of hand type of things and stuff. And he worked at the park. And he said, I made enough that month to fund my ministry for an entire year so that I didn't have to worry about whether or not I got a salary from the church and kind of opened my eyes to the well okay how do you control this I mean I realize some people are practicing hardcore black magic Halloween's not the day for the church to be involved in that but with regard to the majority of people who put on costumes and go and try to get candy and stuff like that I'm not a big proponent of handing out tracts handing out Bibles, you know, I, I, and here's, we'll get into this later this hour. It's not that I don't want people to hear the good news. The question is how receptive are they to it? When we think about, if you've ever done any kind of long-term mission work, you know that in some places, every time I have uh, Greg Harris, the, uh, uh, the president and CEO of Through the Bible on the program here, we talk about the new languages that they are reaching out to, the new people groups that they're reaching out to. And I, I marvel at the time and energy and money it takes to actually develop this type of curriculum. We would like to think that there's a program, computer program out there, and you speak English into that program, it'll translate it into whatever this language is. It takes years to not only get the nuances of a spoken and written language, but also... Uh, to understand the people and how they use it. And it, it, it takes a while. We live in a culture, brothers and sisters, that is not Christian. I know that there are people who would like to say America is a Christian nation. I believe America was founded on biblical principles. But the vast majority of people in the United States either do not believe in God, don't see the Bible as their, their source of morals and values, or they, in all honesty, will just, you know, they, they just kind of, thumb their nose up at anything that has to do with anything good and godly and spiritual. So for us to say, okay, well, here's what we're going to do. The whole world is the second most popular, second most spent upon holiday in America, but we're going to ignore it. I mean, it's kind of like saying we're not going to go on social media because the people behind it are bad, rather than there's two billion profiles on Facebook. Maybe we can re lead some of them to faith. And then what do you, what do you post? Well, Bible verses and uptight people in black and white pictures looking about, we can't be that easy to avoid. We can't be that easy to ignore. It would be really easy for the world to say, oh, here come those Christians again. They're going to tell us how bad and awful uh, Halloween is and eh, we don't want to hear it. You know, in all honesty, I, I, something tells me that uh, the majority of people who are out pointing the finger, you know, the crooked, broken <laughs> finger and the squinty nose glasses at the end of it you know all curled up and you know, whatever balled up who are doing so may not have the completely biblical worldview 
go into all the world and preach the gospel doesn't mean that there's a certain 1950s style of pounding the pulpit. It also doesn't mean that the hyper grace, no law version of it uh, is the way to go either. Hey, we love everybody. Everybody's welcome. We include everyone. Do whatever you want to do. Be licentious with your sin. We don't care. We just, we'll, we'll tell you God loves you. And you know what? God loves you. And he loves you just the way you are and thinks you're fabulous. Well, that's not true. You and I both know our sin is so heinous to God and God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son is a huge statement because it says in spite of the fact God could have very easily written us off. He created mankind. He created Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve introduced sin into the world. And you notice the Bible always says Adam entered the sin into the world. Sin came in through one man and through the man Jesus came grace and the good news and the gospel and redemption and salvation. So for those who say, yeah, it's all Eve's fault, well, the scriptures are pretty clear that Adam gets blamed for letting sin into the Garden of Eden, into the paradise. But you know, it's, it's interesting when you think about, you know, the, the, the way that we're all sinful people and God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Why? He wanted to restore a right relationship with us and he knew that we could not be the ones to introduce that because we're sinful and we're unholy and we're filthy our righteousness, Isaiah says, is like filthy rags and we can't dwell in God's presence. So God, who is holy but wanted relationship with us, had to make a way for us to come into relationship with him. And so he sent Jesus to, to pay the penalty for our sin, to be crucified, died, buried. He ascended, descended into hell. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven, is seated at the right hand of the Father. Yes, this is your Apostles' Creed reading for the day. But the reason... It's so important, especially on a day like today, on Reformation Day, is how many Christians really believe that? How many Christians are running around saying, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, and hey, look at me, I'm a Bible study leader at my church, but my wife and I are dressed like you, Hefner, and a Playboy bunny. No, wait, whoa, 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 wait a minute. <laughs> that alone is a pretty good indication that you don't understand the good news of the gospel. Well, one guy who fell into that category is a man by the name of J. Warner Wallace. He was a devout atheist. He was a homicide detective. And people had tried to share the gospel with him, and it just did not make any sense to him until he, he started, okay, taking a look at the way he would approach a, uh, a case as a cold case detective. Cold case, meaning, of course, that the case had gone south. It was done. It was over. They said, forget it. We're putting the file up. We can't figure this thing out. Can you figure out who did what and who might be guilty? He started using these principles that he used to solve cold cases and began to uncover the reality of what faith in Christ really means. He wrote a book about it called Cold Case Christianity. A homicide detective investigates the claims of the gospel became a runaway bestseller about 10 years ago, and he just released a 10-year edition of the book that's been updated and expanded to include a lot more things about examining faith in Christ and figuring out what it means to be a Christian in a very a-Christian, almost post-Christian world. Uh, Jay Werner Wallace is going to join me on the other side of this break as we have kind of a uh, Reformation Day celebration. By the way, we have two copies, not one, but two copies of the newly expanded and updated 10th anniversary edition of Cold Case Christianity. We're giving those away today. So this is not a trick-or-treat thing. You just ring our doorbell or, well, no, don't ring the doorbell, call the phone. Okay, 800-227-5278, 800-227-5278, 800 the number to get you through to the bottom line. Jay Warner Wallace joins me next as the bottom line continues.
You can protect against market volatility without investing all your money into bonds. Wilson Financial has simply better alternatives. The last 12 months, there has been almost $1.7 trillion invested in investment-grade bonds. This move to safety locks up money for a long time of guaranteed low returns. Why? Market volatility. Well, my comment is why go with low earnings for a long time when you can get great earnings with a solid real estate-backed investment paying you 6% over the next three years. After three years, you can invest in another option, or you can do what most of our investors do and reinvest in another one of our new exclusive 6% accounts. This strategy gives you the best of both options without settling for many years of low returns. Our 3D Money 6% account pays you great interest while you're not subjecting yourself to market volatility. Call 800-696-9970, 800-696-9970, or visit kbrightradio.com slash Wilson Financial and ask about Dennis Wilson's exclusive real estate-backed 6% investment account. Wilson Financial Services, for simply better alternatives. It was many years ago that Jay Warner Wallace, uh, a cold case detective and a popular speaker, wound up finding himself on the other end of a conversation about Christianity. He'd been a devout atheist for a number of years, and he decided that he was going to prove this thing wrong once and for all. Well, guess what happened? But what wound up happening is a book called Cold Case Christianity, a homicide detective investigates the claims of the gospel that became a big bestseller. Well, now Jay Warner Wallace has done an updated and extended edition and expanded on what he originally wrote all those many years ago. The brand new book is up at the bottom line show and he's here with us to talk about it. Jay Warner Wallace, welcome back to the Bottom Line Show. Well, thanks for having me. Yeah, it's been it's been ten years, and I, we certainly didn't expect it to do as well as it did. And and then of course that opened the door for us to kind of have the opportunity to update it whenever we you know this has been like my dream to do this for a while. Yeah, um, and glad to be have, have finally done it. Well, the fact that you have background as a detective uh, is, is something that is fascinating and fun to read. It's fun to listen to you kind of go through the analysis of how things, you know, work in terms of your investigation of Christianity. But a lot of the thing, I appreciate the fact that you remind us that these are all skills that are not unique to you or anybody who works in police homicide. Rather, I mean, this is something that we can all kind of put on our detectives caps, young or old, and, and actually do this. Talk about how detective skills really do help us determine things like how historically reliable the Bible is, for example. Well, I think you're right that, that this is this is not something that is is unique to, to detect. That's why I think there's so much interest in, in those kinds of shows, detective shows, because number, number oh, one, goodness, we all yes. want to solve the mystery. But but number right. two, we all recognize that we probably possess a lot of these skills anyway, especially if you're like a parent of a teenager, you're probably a pretty good detective. So, <laughs> yes. so this is something that I think that most of us is a skill set most of us understand. And I, and I do think this is something that we ought to... I think, I think for a lot of people I knew when I became a Christian, I kind of thought, well, doesn't everyone who becomes a Christian, didn't they do a similar kind of investigation? Like, how would you determine mm-hmm. if these claims about the resurrection were true if you didn't? Well, it turns out, as you and I both know, that not everyone takes an investigative approach to what they believe about God. Mm-hmm. Although I think everyone has an incredibly high value for evidence. It's just what is it that we would consider evidence to begin with? So for a lot of us, what we consider to be evidence is our own personal experience. We had some experience that we just can't explain mm-hmm. any other way. If it's not from God, how else could this have happened? That kind of thing is very common. And that's somebody who's saying, look, that's the, what's called direct evidence. That's, that's the experience of my direct involvement, something I saw with my own eyes. Okay. The problem, of course, is, is that lots of folks will say that they are whatever they are. 
right. because they had an experience that they could interpret no other way. If you've got Mormon family members, they'll probably say the same thing. If you know a Buddhist or a Muslim, they may say the same thing. Mm-hmm. We could do a little better. We could actually investigate if this thing we have interpreted as, as being from God actually is from God. And that's what we, I try to do in the book. Well, the book Cold Case Christianity has been updated and expanded by Jay Warner Wallace in its 10th anniversary format. It's now up at thebottomlineshow.com and people are just gobbling it up. And I would imagine that uh, the difference between 2013 America, for example, and 2023 America and the American church, people reading this are saying, wow, this is incredible. I mean, uh, the fact that you start off in the book by saying, hey, if you want to be a good detective, the first thing you have to do is not be a know-it-all. And I'm thinking, well, let me look at my smartphone and see if that's a, a, an accurate... <laughs> you run into a lot of people, I'm sure you do. I'm finding it even in the evangelical circles these days, Jim, and I'd love to get your comment on this, who people are just kind of looking around saying, wait, I mean, what's happening to evangelical Christianity? Because, I mean, Donald Trump and blah, 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 and everything like that. And I'm thinking, yeah, but there's so many people who just want to be in the know. We all know this to be true, and it might be cultural rather than biblical, and it's messing up our faith. Oh, you're, there's no, there's absolutely no doubt about that. So, so you're right. This is this is the biggest challenge we have, right? Is that I, I often think that it's sometimes easier to to talk about Jesus with people who don't know anything about Jesus than it is to talk to people who think they do. Mm-hmm. And I think part of it is that we have we, we learn things either through the culture or through our desires, what we wish would be true. Like, wouldn't we love it if we could if God was just a, kind of a, a, a grander version of us? <laughs> so that whatever <laughs> right? it is we think is important, we would just transfer to God. Wouldn't that be awesome? Yeah. Well, that's the kind of thing you see all the time, right? So, so for us, the question is: Look, in the end, if you're in a criminal trial. What's going to, what I hope, reigns with, uh, with jurors is not their preference for who they'd like to see as the killer, but who they determine by the, by, on the basis of the evidence is the killer. So in the end, I, this, is, this is the one place that I don't see subjectivism yet uh, ruling the courtroom. It seems like we all might come into the courtroom thinking, yeah, truth is always what resides in my own, you know, I determine what's true. Um, such you know, this could be true about everything in your life. But I bet you, if you're called for jury duty, suddenly you become an objectivist, right? You'll say, "No, you know right. what? I need to look at the evidence." So, so look, that's my point: is if we do that for the most important decisions we make about the fate of strangers who have been accused of things, why would we not take that same approach for the most important decisions we're going to make about our faith? Mm. I, Jay Warder Wallace is with me today here on The Bottom Line, and he's such a wealth of knowledge. I just I, I kind of sitting on. I'm like, wait, I have to ask you a follow-up question. I've got 15 that I want to ask you. But we're talking about the newly expanded yeah. up, uh, uh, expanded, updated edition of Cold Case Christianity that's up at thebottomlineshow.com. Can you talk for just a moment, Jim, about uh, circumstantially and how you why you encourage people to think that way? Because, I mean, that when you look at the nature of circumstantial evidence, sometimes people go, oh, well, yeah. You know, but they don't really take it seriously. But you, you encourage us to, you know, to think that way. Yeah, there's, there's, look, I think most people will say, uh, you know, see your skeptical friends are likely to say something like, well, you have no hard evidence that Christianity is true. And I always right. respond by saying, you're absolutely right. We, we, there is no such thing as hard evidence. There is no hard evidence for anything. It's not a category. It's like you go into criminal trials and the judge is going to tell you, look, we're going to pay attention now to both the hard and soft evidence. There's no such thing. There's either direct evidence or indirect evidence. Those are the mm. only two forms of evidence. And once you know that, it makes it a little easier to talk to your friends, because it turns out we can make a case in both. Now, look, direct evidence is simply 
eyewitness testimony. There was something you saw or something a witness who comes in to testify will claim they saw. Either one is called direct evidence. Everything else is indirect. That means the DNA, fingerprints, uh, ballistics, uh, gunshot residue, these are all indirect forms of evidence. Now, why this is important for us to recognize is because it turns out that, that, that if you're going to make a case to people who think there's nothing you could say that would weigh in as evidence, well, then you're really going to go around in circles. I knew, as I was looking at the claims of the Gospels for the first time, that these were claims that were made by people who want us to believe they actually saw it with their own eyes. This is true for Matthew. This is true for John. Luke tells us that he's interviewing the eyewitnesses and servants of the Word. Okay, if it's eyewitness testimony, well, we can test that. There's a test that we offer eyewitnesses. That's kind of what I did when I first looked at the Gospels. I figured, how am I going to know this is a crazy claim, that someone rose from the grave so I, I really, I don't, I don't trust witnesses anyway. So I really didn't trust the witnesses <laughs> yeah. on this one. Uh-huh. So then the question became, well, how do I know if this is true? Well, how would you know? It's by examining both the uh, direct and indirect evidence, and that's what we try to do in the book. Hmm. Cold Case Christianity is up at thebottomlineshow.com. This is the 2023 edition, 10-year anniversary. It's been updated. It's been expanded by Jay Warner Wallace and his team. There's a link for the book up at thebottomlineshow.com. Jim, when did you know? as you were doing your detective work on faith, that you had really reached the point where you write about this in the book, where enough is enough and you have to, you're comfortable with the conclusions you've drawn. You don't need any more evidence. You don't, you're, you're not anticipating any sort of snipe attack from some other way. When did you find that groove and what's it like for a detective when they say, yeah, we've got all the evidence we need to prove this thing either to be true or false? I think I was probably in it about nine or more months. Uh, but remember, I was doing a lot of parallel stuff. So, so look, if, if there is no God, well, then there's no Christian God. So to make a claim mm-hmm. that the supernatural elements of the Gospels could be reasonable, you first have to believe that there is a God who could control the, the natural realm. And so I didn't believe that. So I needed to go back and investigate why, why would anyone think that there actually is a God? To, to make sense of this at all. Otherwise, you're just never going to accept. You're going to be a know-it-all. There's no God, right. therefore there are no miracles, therefore anything <laughs> in the Scriptures are false. Right. So I went. I spent uh, probably three months just looking at the evidence for God's existence in a very intense way, and I wrote about that in a book called God's Crime Scene. And while I was doing this investigation of the, of the Gospels, and I would think about probably about nine or ten months in, I remember telling my wife, you know, I, this, I, don't, I can't find a reason to reject these accounts as unreliable. It, it seemed like every way I cut this, they passed the test, the kinds of tests we would offer an eyewitness. And, and so I, I, I said, I don't know what to do. But at the same time, I said, I, I still don't get why, if any of this is true, why Jesus would have to die on the cross. In other words, I, I came to trust that the Gospels were reliable long before I really came to understand what the Gospel message was. Because remember, I'm just focusing on the narratives in the gospel accounts mm-hmm. and trying to ascertain it is, do I have good reason to believe that they're telling me reliably about this resurrected guy named Jesus? Right. You know, I wasn't spending a lot of time thinking about, well, what is he here to do? Mm-hmm. I, I was really more focused on how do I, conf- you know, there's four uh, ways to test an eyewitness. I was just laying into that. It wasn't until I started to say, okay, I, I trust what this New Testament is telling me about Jesus. Now let's keep reading. Yeah. And and once you stop reading the Gospels to find out what it says about Jesus and start reading the New Testament to see what it says about you, yeah. you'll move from belief that to belief in. 
Because until you mm-hmm. know that, that, that the Bible is describing you the way you really are, a sinner in need of a Savior, you, you aren't going to be accepting of that Savior because you don't think there's any need. Mm. And, and so I needed to get to a place where I, I, I you know, you recognize that, you know, you know, read Romans, read 1 Corinthians. You're going to see that it, it, he, Paul's describing us. He's describing me. He's describing you. And once we get to that place, you know that you're a sinner in need of a Savior. Well, I already did the heavy lifting to determine if there was a Savior. But now I knew I had a need, and I just put Mm. those two things together. Well, what a landmark work, and how fortunate we are to have some time today with Jay Warner Wallace to talk about the 10th anniversary edition of the classic book, Cold Case Christianity. We have not one, but two copies of this book we're giving away today, 800-227-5278, 800-227-5278, 800-227-5278, the number to get you through to the bottom line. When you were in an accident, Stephanie Cover of Cover Law is the only personal injury attorney you need. Stephanie talks to victims all the time who wish they would have signed with her first. Unfortunately, once you've signed a retainer with a different attorney, Stephanie can't represent you. So it's crucial to have Stephanie's number handy now and make the smart call the first time. Stephanie is the right attorney to represent your personal injury claim, specifically because she worked for insurance companies for 20 years, so she knows the best questions to ask and when. Stephanie knows when things don't sound accurate, and she knows when she's being deceived. Stephanie is a Christian, and telling the truth is vital, so she holds professionals to that standard, too. Stephanie's unique blend of skill, expertise, and compassion get you real results. Bookmark Stephanie's website now so you don't have regrets, and pass it on to your friends and relatives who will need it. Just go to kbrightradio.com slash cover today to set up a free consultation. That's kbrightradio.com slash C-O-V-E-R. Welcome back to this Reformation Day edition of the Bottom Line Show. I'm Roger Marsh, and it's just as we think of Martin Luther and his 95 theses nailed to the door at the church at Wittenberg. And then, of course, he went in front of the Diet of Worms four years later and had to defend himself and was excommunicated by the Catholic Church for calling them into question with regard to grace alone, faith alone, um, and word alone. Um, we've got Jay Werder Wallace on the line with us today here on the program talking about his classic work, Cold Case Christianity, and how, as a cold case detective who was an atheist, he started using some of the same principles he used to uncork and crack these cold cases that had just been sitting dead for years and was able to solve many of them, a very successful uh, detective. Those same principles help people who are pretty much dead in their faith. They, they're atheist or agnostic. They really don't have any sort of faith system. And it's been leading thousands of people to Christ. The 10th anniversary edition of the book Cold Case Christianity is up at thebottomlineshow.com. We have not one but two copies of this book we're giving away today. 800-227-5278. 800-227-5278. 800-227-5278, the number to get you through to the bottom line. We'll take a quick break. And when we continue, my conversation with Jim Wallace continues. And we'll talk more about the 10th anniversary of Cold Case Christianity as the bottom line continues in a moment. Jay Werner Wallace is with me today here on The Bottom Line. Cold Case Christianity, if you read the original version that came out in 2013, you saw a homicide detective investigating the claims of the gospel. Now you're finding, uh, you know, taking that to a whole different level. It sounds to me, and this is a gross generalization, and please correct me if if I'm wrong, Jay Werner Wallace, but the, the fact that it seems like most evangelism outreach activity in the States from Western American Christians is really not so much about this is why it's important to you. It's almost like this is why it's important to me to tell you, you know, this is why it's important for our church that you come here rather yeah, than right. saying, hey, you're going to die. I mean, is that 
a fairly accurate statement because it seems like our evangelistic outreaches have been kind of flat of late. No, I think you're right, and I think that's a sad, sad statement to make. And you just got done talking to George Barna, and I'm sure, I'll bet you he probably would affirm a lot of what yeah. we're talking about here. Mm-hmm. And, and I think you're absolutely right that that part of what I think even even beyond that, part of what is going to be important for the generation that we're addressing now, Gen Z, is not just is it true. Because um, that's something that me as a as a boomer, uh, you know, that's uh, was important to me, right? Because we right, we right. didn't struggle with this issue of what's subjectively true and what's objectively true. But but now I think we're going to have to argue also. It's not just is it true? Is it good? Is mm. it beautiful? Mm-hmm. Is because because you know something can be true yet be so ugly I just reject it. <laughs> exactly. And and I think what we're seeing online is this claim that basically if you're not me, if you're somebody other than me, then what you believe might be true for you and it's ugly. Therefore, I'm not part of that. So right. so it's, that's why I wrote a book called Person of Interest uh, a couple of years ago just to kind of to complete the circle because half of this is going to be for all of us trying to communicate Jesus to young people. Is it true? Because I would argue if it's not true, it can't be good. I mean, right. a useful lie is still a lie. And and why would you want to, I'd rather live in an inconvenient truth than in a convenient lie. Hmm. So it's important for me to know, is it true? But also, is it beautiful? Like, is it, and this is what, what amazes me, is that people still continue to discover every year through sociological studies, through psychological studies, that the attributes that cause humans to flourish at the highest level are actually very ancient. They're not something we've discovered. Re- we might, you might just be affirming them recently, but they've been on the pages of the New Testament all along. So the Bible doesn't just describe the world the way it really is. It describes us the way we really are and the way we can really flourish. Hmm. And, and a lot of it's going to it's gonna involve us having to reject whatever the latest fad teaching about sexuality, identity, about all of these things that we're seeing in culture it turns out that those do not lead to the highest levels of mental health, physical health, longevity, relationship depth. Any of those things we're talking about are not found over there. They're found over here. And so we have to be able to show, is it true and is it beautiful? So I think in the end, this first book we did was really to establish, is it true? Mm-hmm. And now this is the beautiful edition of Cold Case Christianity, you know, that follow-up. And I think it's, well, it's a, it's a beautiful sentiment. Jay Werner Wallace is with me today here on The Bottom Line. Cold Case Christianity, if you read it, the original v- version that came out in 2013, you saw a homicide detective investigating the claims of the gospel. Now you're finding, uh, you know, taking that to a whole different level. Jim, was what was the biggest change that you noticed in terms of saying, when I wrote this book in 2013, this is what I felt compelled by God to write, but now I really need to address what was the biggest issue for you. Okay, yeah, there's a ton of stuff. So this book has been, uh, there's not a single page I didn't make some kind of a modification, tons of new material. And when you write a book, your first book ever, the publisher may or may not know much about you, know that, for example, I could illustrate my own book. I (laughs) wanted to illustrate the first version as deeply as we illustrated it now. But, of course, you know, the publisher says, what? And now we don't even need those illustrations. Um, that would add another 50 page, you know, whatever it may be. <laughs> so, so I get that. And so this time now I've been able to go back, and we've added 300 illustrations to the book, reformatted. So now this is the book that we always wanted. This is the book mm. that I think is uh, the book that looks the way I wanted it to look, because I think we are in a very visual culture right now. We added a completely afterward, addressing the top 12 uh, kind of complaints that I've had over the last 10 years. And everything that we've learned on stages 
And in classroom settings, teaching this material over the last 10 years, we've now gone back and included in this book because I wanted it to be as persuasive as it could be. And so a lot of it just comes down to trying to figure out what is, what is like, I think most of us, our phones, that glowing rectangle at the end of your hand there, mm-hmm. that thing has caused us to, if one thing it has, it's equalized our generations in the sense that even my 83-year-old mother is now highly visual and has been trained by the phone to want to see it in an illustration rather than have to read it. So mm-hmm. we've now got a book that I think is about half and half, where you can both see the illustrations and read the text so that it's ingrained in your memory so you can share it with others. I love the fact that you are addressing that form of communication. So many people you know, would, would back away and say, well, you can't just do that because it's more entertainment value or whatever it is. Or like in, in the practical side of your publisher saying, you just add an extra 50 pages or you know, whatever right. it's going to be. But that, you know, I, 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 taking all of the practicality from that standpoint aside, the fact that you do need to this is the way we speak and you know, no one would ever tell a missionary well we're not going to go down and you know try to translate the language and this that the way they did it if they didn't think it was going to be effective this is the yeah. way people communicate right now and i think that's kind of the the blessing and the curse of the visually driven culture um where the idea that you know a, a meme a headline a picture you know that tells you everything you need to know about gaza right there you know and then, without understanding yeah, okay. the whole history there so how do we jim now move forward i'm a grandfather you're, you've got, I'm assuming you have grandfather. I'm a grandfather as well. So I'm okay, congr- about that. congratulations. Yeah, yeah we, we've got four and two more on the way, you know, because they just, oh, now they're going to start going. popping up. Well, praise God. Um, yeah. I want to make sure that that generation is getting the truth. That generation that had a screen stuck in their face literally the moment they were born. You know, I mean, that's, mm-hmm. a, that's how desperate the culture has become. What can we do? Uh, boomers like us, you know, to say, hey, I want to make sure that the generation and the generation beyond isn't going to get lost because back to George's data, we're talking statistically there's 2% with a biblical worldview that would even have the initiative like you did to say, I want to prove this thing wrong, and then it turns out to be right. Yeah, gosh, you know, you're, you're absolutely right. So here's what I would say. I would say that um, for this generation, I've said it many times, I wrote another book called So the Next Generation Will Know, which we talk about this. I think there's got to be two whys for every what. We have to make sure the next generation knows what is true, for sure. What is true about the Bible? What is true about God? What is true about Jesus? That's a what. What, 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 what. That's, we have a tendency to stick right there and not move beyond the what's. But this generation, I think, needs the other whys. The first why is, well, why do you think that's true? Just because you were raised that way? Mom and Dad? Because, what, like, can you defend the, this view you hold the same way that my secular friends defend theirs with science. Okay, well, look, this is this is how they see the difference. So we can't we have the, we we hold this unde- indefensible view because it's not supported by any reason, evidence, or all the things that culture accepts, and they hold the view that's reasonable. Okay, we need to be able to help them to see that this view we hold is testable, and we can test it, and it can pass the test. That's number one. Number two, the second why is why should I care? In the end, we can make a case for something we think is important, but if the people we're talking to don't see a need for it, don't see how it could actually improve their life, don't see any, like, why do I care about this? Mm-hmm. Well, I want to do both. I want to show you, number one, why is it true? That's what cold case Christianity is all about. And then we have to be able to figure out, like, hey, given whatever the issue may be, like, why should I care? Why should you care? Yes, you should care about this. Let me explain to you why you should. And the, I think that's parents, if we can do those two things, We'll see a change in the way our kids, because now we hold a truth that's not just our, you know, I, my favorite sports team. 
Well, there's I've got two sports teams in Los Angeles. You know that I could be a you know I could I could be one the Chargers or the or the the Rams. Mm-hmm. I could be the Lakers or the the Clippers. I could be the you know, Angels or the Dodgers. I mean, this is not a matter of just well, who do I pick? We want to be able to show that why this is exclusively true. This is the one cure for what's killing all of us. And I think that's what we try to do. There's two whys for every what. It's, it's vital. It's necessary. But when you learn to think like a detective, knowing that, you know, let's face it, some of the greatest mysteries of life, God's hidden for us to discover as opposed to just saying, here it is, dun, da, da, da. you know, I, I want the lightning bolt. I want the skies to part. I want the big red arrow. But sometimes yeah. you have to do the, the, do the due diligence. And Jay Warner Wallace has a fantastic ministry about, you know, that very issue. The updated and expanded edition of Cold Case Christianity is now up at thebottomlineshow.com. And we are so grateful grateful to have had this time today to talk with Jay Warner Wallace about the book. Jim, thank you so much for uh, the work that you've done in this area. Thank you for being willing to uh, you know, put yourself out there as the example of saying, I tried to prove this thing wrong and look at what it's done to me. You've got this whole new ministry and this whole new life, and we are always blessed by your words. So thank you for being with us today here on The hey, Bottom Line thanks Show. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate any opportunity to talk with you. Thanks again. Well, it is always great to get some time with Jim Wallace, and uh, I'm so grateful. Jay Warner Wallace is his name, but of course there's another Christian media guy by the name of Jim Wallace. And so when the book Cold Case Christianity came out, they said, what's your middle name? Jay Warner Wallace was born. The book Cold Case Christianity, a homicide detective investigates the claims of the gospel, is up at thebottomlineshow.com. This is the 10th anniversary edition of the prog- of the book. It's been out just a couple of months, has over 700 reviews on Amazon, and all of them give it five stars. I want you to have a copy of this book. 800-227-5278-800-227-5278-800-227-5278 is the number to get you through to the bottom line. And here we are in Reformation Day as we take a look at the claims of Martin Luther and the challenges that the church actually experienced and realizing that the church was made better, I believe, Uh, because of what Martin Luther did in terms of uh, taking his studies in the Jesuit uh, community, studying to be a Catholic priest and asking 95 different questions of the church as to why they believed what they did and how it would impact him as a believer. And uh, boy, I'll tell you, the work that he did was was transformational, of course. Obviously, uh, it's not like Martin Luther was setting out to uh, start a new... (laughs) denomination I don't think he was and later in life we'll talk a little bit more about his history in uh, hour number two of the program today later in life he actually even uh, uh, made a couple of statements that we as Christians today would say hey wait a minute where'd that come from but the idea that he challenged the cultural norm that he looked at what the church was uh, you know putting out right then and realizing there's some timeline things that need to be you know, addressed in the church with regard to why the Vatican did what it did and why they responded to him the way they did and why we still have these two parallel tracks in the body of Christ, both professing Christian tracks and both uh, professing to, uh, to be the church. Um, why there's so much confusion and what we as Christians, actual Bible-believing Christians can do to kind of mend some of those fences and fill in some of the holes in our theology. And a guy like Jay Werner Wallace says, hey, look, I was an atheist and I was basically trying to prove Christianity to be a lie. And instead, I wound up becoming a Christian and apologist. Same story for Lee Strobel. You know, and he would investigate a reporter, legal analyst, and his wife became a Christian and he basically went to her pastor 
who was uh, Bill Hybels at Willow Creek in Chicago, and said, I'm going to prove you wrong because what have you done to my wife? You've brainwashed her and now she's part of this religious cult. And of course, Lee Strobel is one, has become one of the greatest apologists in our generation. So it's amazing to see that there have been so many, so many progress, so many steps of actual progress made in the culture with regards to faith in Christ and how many people are growing stronger and deeper in their faith. But for a nation that prides itself on being a quote unquote Christian nation, you might be surprised to find how many people really aren't Christian anymore and uh, how many people just kind of fall into the category of being quote unquote religious and how many other people fall into the category of just being spiritual. And what, in fact, does that mean? Is it any surprise that we are facing some of the challenges that we are in the culture right now when you consider the results of a 2023 Gallup polls conducted this past summer that asked a question that they've asked. They asked it in 1999. They asked it in 2002. 1999, of course, you know, getting on the verge of uh, the cusp of Y2K. And then 2002 was after, of course, the 9-11 attacks. And that really caused a lot of people to question everything. We'll take a quick break. And when we come back, I want to get into some of these statistics, because if you're frustrated with the way our country's going, if you are devastated to find out that another close relative of yours has left the church or that person who never really wanted to hear the good news keeps running further and further away from you, this new Gallup poll might actually give you some information as to why this is happening and what has happened in the culture uh, that we as Christians are wise to pay attention to. We'll talk about that coming up next as the bottom line continues. My thanks again to Jay Warner Wallace, the author of Cold Case Christianity, the former atheistic cold case detective, a homicide detective, who used some of the principles that he had put into play as a cop and uh, was using them and has been using them now for the past decade to lead people to Christ as an apologist. Ten years ago, he wrote a book called Cold Case Christianity. Uh, a homicide detective investigates the claims of the Gospels. And that book really, uh, it was, it was life-changing for a lot of people, especially those who were atheistic and said, I don't believe in the existence of God at all. And then all of a sudden, Jay Warner Wallace says, I know, right? That was me. But I use these tried and true detective principles that I used to use for sleuthing cases. I would go in the files. They had literally, it was a cold case. In other words, they'd given up on it. There was, they had all the evidence they could find. It didn't come to any kind of conclusions. They gave up. Jim was that detective who would open up that case again and say, oh, now, wait a minute, maybe we missed something. Maybe there was something going on here that we didn't see. Maybe there was something that we thought we saw that wasn't actually there. And he was a very successful cold case detective. So it's interesting how God used his, uh, Jim's background to uh, help him become one of the more notable apologists of our generation. And the 10th anniversary edition of Cold Case Christianity has just now been released. It's extremely popular, and we are fortunate enough to have not one but two copies that we're giving away today. 800-227-5278. 800-227-5278. 800 is the number to get you through to the bottom line. I mentioned this Gallup poll. I don't want to run past this or through it before we get into our conversation about Martin Luther. So let's take a look at this poll. We'll post it up at thebottomlineshow.com. It comes from the gallup.com news source. With regard to the number of Americans who describe themselves as either religious or spiritual, but not religious, or how many people are spiritual and religious. Now, if you have seen social media sites with regard to the dating world, um, 
you see that there are a lot of people, that's one of the options that many of the dating services will do. Are you a Christian or a Catholic or a Hindu or Buddhist or whatever? And then they also have a box that says spiritual but not religious. And there are a lot of people who claim to be in that category. Now think about it though, that doesn't necessarily mean you're a Christian who just doesn't go to church all the time. That means somebody who says, yeah, I believe in a higher power. I believe in crystals or the environment or whatever it is. And so there are spiritual people and then there are people who are religious people. And, and re remember, a religion doesn't necessarily have to be a, a higher power. There are a lot of people who are religious in their devotion to the environment. There are people who are religious in their devotion to Monday night football. I mean, there's any, you can be religious about just about anything. Here's the new study from Gallup. It was conducted in July of 2023. And interestingly enough, they haven't done this poll in 20 years. So here are the changes that have taken place. Nearly half of Americans describe themselves as religious, according to a new Gallup poll. 47% of the people answered that they are religious. Another 33% say that they are spiritual, but not religious. And 2% say they are both. Now, 47 plus 33 is 80, and 2% is whatever. So that means there's another 18% of people who say that they don't have any sort of religious affiliation whatsoever. Though the vast majority of U.S. adults, according to this survey, have uh, one of those orientations toward the non-physical world, that 18%, which is nearly one out of every five Americans, is double the number of Americans who answered positively to that question in 1999. It's interesting, I'm not sure why Gallup decided to do this poll when they did it. Um, in 1999, they asked the question, kind of, hey, we're on the verge of uh, 2000, let's see what's going on. In 2002, they did this survey again, because we just had the 9-11 attacks and America was kind of shaken to its spiritual core. But then they haven't done this in nearly 21 years. What's interesting about this is, so basically 82% of Americans have some kind of spiritual belief system. In 2002, 87% of Americans did. In, two, in 1999, it was 90%. But here are some of the interesting things. Among the people who are religious or spiritually self-identified, and then what political party they're in, 63% of Republicans identify as religious, and another 28% identify as spiritual. So that totals, what, 89%. Uh, 2% are both, and 8% are neither. Among independents and Democrats now, and maybe this is our Super Tuesday segment of what we're talking about. 37% of Democrats say that they're religious and 44% of independents say that they are. So 61% of Republicans are religious people. 44% of independents are religious people. 37% of Democrats are religious people. Again, and that can be any religion. Then uh, on the spiritual side of the equation, 28% of Republicans identify as spiritual. Uh, 32% of independents, spiritual, 44% of Democrats. That's interesting. But when it comes to whether or not you are a spiritual and or religious person, this is where the numbers are really staggering. And this is where the body of Christ needs to wake the heck up. Instead of just shaking our fists and clutching our pearls and looking at progressives and saying, why can't they? Why can't they? Why can't they? Why do they have to do this? Why don't they do that? Here's why. When it comes to identifying as either religious or spiritual, 
both or neither, 8% of Republicans say that they don't have any sort of religious or spiritual affiliation whatsoever. That number jumps to 21% when you're talking about independents and Democrats. So if we as Christians who typically vote conservative, which means we're, if we're going to align with a major party, we're more likely to go GOP than Democrat. And GOP, of course, stands for grand old party, in case you were wondering. Um, if you are more elephant than donkey, please know that those on the Democrat side are three times more likely to not have any sort of spiritual or religious affiliation whatsoever. So therefore, God says this is a baby in the womb does not resonate with these people because God does not resonate with these people. The sanctity of human life argument is a perfect example of how our values oftentimes get flushed down the toilet in the political discussion. I want to dig into that a little bit more on the other side of this break because I think it's important for us to do so. That's coming up next as the bottom line continues. You know the old expression, a picture is worth a thousand words. Well, if you're an expectant mom and you go to a pregnancy health center that is in partnership with Preborn, one picture can say way more than that. And that picture I'm talking about is an ultrasound picture. Every donation that goes to Preborn goes to providing ultrasounds for women who are expecting children and they want to know what all of their options are. When you call 833-850-BABY right now, you give a gift of $28 that provides one ultrasound. But if you give a gift toward the purchase of an ultrasound machine, now that's a $15,000 investment, but every ultrasound machine can do 250 ultrasounds per year and lasts a minimum of 10 years. That's 2,500 ultrasounds available to women right now. Think of all the babies, thousands of babies' lives that will be saved by your donation to preborn right now. Call 833-850-BABY. 833-850-BABY. That's 833-850-2229. Make your best donation right now. $50, $100. Maybe you want to give $15,000. It's completely tax deductible. We've had a couple of bottom line listeners step up and do just that. 833-850-BABY. 833-850-BABY. That's 833-850-2229. Call Preborn right now. Welcome back to this Reformation Day edition of the Bottom Line Show. I'm Roger Marsh, and so glad that you have tuned in today for this conversation. Uh, you got a few moments left to get in on the giveaway, our special uh, Reformation Day. It's the 31st. You can call whatever you want to. Uh, giveaway. Uh, if you are, I, I, if I say trick-or-treating, someone's going to get offended. But uh, you're calling here, you're stopping by on the phone, and we have two things to put in your goodie bag. Uh, there are two different copies of the book Cold Case Christianity. If you read the original that came out in 2013, this is the special 10th anniversary edition that's been updated and expanded. Homicide Detective Investigates the Claims of the Gospel. That would be J. Werner Wallace. 800-227-5278. 800-227-5278. 800-227-5278 is the number to get you through to the bottom line. Now, we were talking about this Gallup poll that was conducted in July of this year asking Americans... Are you religious? Are you spiritual? Are you both or are you neither? George Barna has told me often and with great passion that the biblical worldview numbers in the United States continue to drop. Among baby boomers and greatest generation types, 6% of Americans who say I'm a Christian actually live out by a biblical worldview. When you get to Gen X and millennials, it drops to 4%. And Gen Z is dipping around the 2% mark. Not surprisingly, 
for Democrats, independents, and Republicans, about 2% of all people in those voting categories are considering themselves spiritual and religious. It means their, their religious beliefs are active and alive for them. But that number, 21% of independents, 21% of Democrats have no religious or spiritual affiliation whatsoever, means that when we start arguing for the sanctity of human life, and God created life in the womb and blah, 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 here's what it sounds like to them. Wah, 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 wah. Wah, wah, wah. I'm doing Miss Othmar from Charlie Brown. Wah, wah, wah. It's a muted slide trombone. And basically, that's what your argument sounds like to them. We have to do better when it comes to our messaging of biblical values. You can't just assume, well, everybody agrees in my circle that we're a Christian nation, so therefore, there we go. We can't do that, guys. We just can't. It doesn't mean we back down from biblical values. But it means rather we take more responsibility in saying, how can I communicate? If you've ever done a mission trip to a different culture where they spoke a different language, think of all the hours you spent, the weeks you spent preparing to bring the good news of the gospel to them in a language they understand adhering to their customs. I remember the words of Franklin Graham with Samaritan's Purse when the Ebola um, uh, epidemic broke out and they were in Liberia and they had a couple, they had two or three doses of the, uh, of the vaccine to, uh, uh, to try. It was experimental. And one of their doctors and one of their nurses actually got infected with it, wound up taking it, and the treatment worked. But the reason it was spreading so quickly was because the people were dying in Liberia of Ebola, and they had a ritual that was part of their culture that said, we wash the dead body and prepare it for burial. Well, everybody was washing with this infected water. Ten different sets of hands were touching each body hundreds of thousands of people were being infected. But the Samaritan's Purse crowd went in and they respected the culture, they respected their traditions and still worked to administer the gospel through the healing medicine that they had. We can learn a lot from that. That's good news and that is the bottom line. For those who remain on the network, Rabbi Schneider and Discovering the Jewish Jesus coming up next. For those who remain for the final half hour of today's program, we're gonna take a look at the life of Martin Luther and what we have been able to learn from his fantastic example on October 31st, 1517. That's coming up next as The Bottom Line continues. Well, welcome back to this Super Tuesday edition of The Bottom Line Show, or welcome to this Super Tuesday edition of The Bottom Line Show. I'm Roger Marsh, realizing, of course, that people who listen to the live terrestrial broadcast, and you'd be surprised, people, uh, I'm getting a lot of opportunities to book interviews now with people who say, oh yeah, we want to be on your podcast, and boy, your podcast is really great, and blah, blah, blippity, blah. And, I, you know, we do podcast this program, but the Bottom Line Show started as a terrestrial radio program. And now, in addition to terrestrial radio, we podcast the audio, and we have a video podcast at myhopenow.com. And I'm grateful that uh, everybody gets a chance to watch us on as many different platforms or listen on as many platforms as we can. But I realize that for many people who tune in on the terrestrial radio, um, the last half hour may be right at the end of your workday, and this is when you tune in. So, hi, <laughs> thanks for joining us. Um, the earlier hour of today's edition of the broadcast is uh, well worth the investment of time. You can hear my conversation with Jay Warner Wallace talking about the 10th anniversary of Cold Case Christianity and the shocking new statistics. Here on Reformation Day, the 206th anniversary of Martin Luther nailing those 95 theses to the door at the Church of Wittenberg, trying to get the... Uh, trying to get everything in order, you know, for the church. Basically, remember, he did so not because he was trying to start a revolution, but um, uh, rather he uh, uh, was just trying to get, he, 
this is a guy who born in 1483 so by the time 1517 rolls around he had thought about pursuing a career in law but you know now the guy's what 30 years old and he really felt called to the ministry and so 30 okay technically he's 34 um he felt a call to the ministry had been studying into the seminaries for a while and it was during that time that he came up with something that, of course, people who are diehard Catholics are saying, no, 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 you're wrong. Um, you know, that, that's not the way it is. The church is still the church. And, and he was right to be excommunicated from the church. But, you know, I have to wonder, the 95 theses that he, um, he went after, uh, you could really boil them down to two central themes, basically. Um, the question was, is the Bible the central religious authority or not? And is it possible for a human being to reach salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ as opposed to their deeds? Because if you look at Catholic teaching, from what I understand, and again, I'm not Catholic, I've been to a couple of masses, I've had some very good friends who are Catholic, and we have people who are Catholic listening to the Bottom Line Show, and I'm glad that you do tune in. But the idea that, um, that, the idea that you've got um, you know, the, the, these two different you know, uh, continuums going on really did strike at the heart of what the Catholic Church had become. And Catholic, of course, in the lower case, you know, we, we think of now the Catholic Church as being the Roman Catholic Church. It's capital C. Uh, it, people who are part of the Roman Catholic Church believe that this is the church. This is the, you know, Peter's the Pope. And this is the, you know, upon this rock, I will build my church. And this is the whole foundation of our faith. And anyone who's, who's outside of that really is not in the church. And what Martin Luther was saying, okay, if we are the church, then I have a couple questions. First and foremost, is the Bible really the central religious authority? Authority, Because it, from what I understand of Catholicism, the Catholic Church says, hey, no, the church is the agency that does all this stuff. It's not necessarily God speaking to us through his word, but it's the church actually doing these things. And that was the reason why, you know, the priests had a lot of authority. The texts were all in Latin. Um, the common folk who went and attended mass basically had to take it on faith that the priests were leading them in the right way even to the point where there's the confessional which kind of flies in the face of against hebrews 4 you know let us now approach the throne of grace with confidence we have a high priest who knows what it's like to be us and we can make our appeal directly to him instead of to the priest here on earth and and luther was challenging that he said, "This it doesn't really make it. It doesn't make it much sense." And then there's the whole issue of the: is are you saved by grace through faith, or are you saved by the deeds you do? And the Catholic mentality. And again, this there's this is not completely incorrect the way I read Scripture. If you are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, then the transformation that takes place in your heart will compel you to do good deeds. When you sin against God, there's a repentance, a turning away from the sin. And in terms of the action, though, this is where it gets a little dicey because the Catholic Church teaches that when you sin against God, you have to do something to try to make up for that. Whereas Martin Luther was saying, wait, there's no way you could make up for that. There, there's nothing you can do. And so you'll hear really, I think, there's some good measured conversation going on like on YouTube and video channels and things like that of people actually having these debates and these discussions. And I think it's really healthy for those of us who profess faith in Christ but do so in different flavors, as a friend of mine likes to say, whether it be Catholic or Lutheran or Episcopal or uh, Presbyterian, you know, non-denominational, however you do it, to take a look at this, these issues 
and say, okay, what does scripture say? What does God say? How do we do this? Because it would be silly. I mean, let's face it. Your faith is worthless. If you say, I believe in God, God loves me, has a wonderful plan for my life. I'm going to heaven. And when I sin, I pray, God, please forgive me. And then I just go along my merry way. But if we truly do repent of our sin, what's going to happen? If you engage in sinful activity and you say, wow, I'm sinful and I'm, I sinned against God, then what am I going to do? I'm going to take the words of Jesus to heart with the woman caught in adultery. John 8, where, where they're basically, they've, they all lined up, everyone, the, the punishment for adultery in Jesus' day by the law of the Jews was death. And the, um, the, 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 solution if you caught a woman in adultery was you brought her before the local council and they said we caught her in adultery what do we do we're supposed to stone her you can imagine this whole crowd of people coming to jesus as a rabbi and you know the pharisees were always trying to test him this woman was caught in adultery notice the man's nowhere to be found but the woman was caught in adultery and they they want to stone her to death and jesus says okay well you know what the law says but here's what i would say let whoever is without sin cast the first stone and I love the image of the sound of all those stones going drop, 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 drop. Not that they're throwing at her, but literally people are saying, wait a minute, well, I'm sinful. I've committed sins before. I can't condemn her if I'm sinful myself. Drop, 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 drop. And they all leave. And then Jesus looks at the woman and asks her, where are your accusers? And she says, they're not here. And he says, well, then I don't condemn you either, but go and sin no more. And that's the essence of the whole relationship we have with God in a nutshell, the way I interpret scripture, which is when we sin, because we will sin. We won't sin as much, hopefully, if we're Christians and the Holy Spirit's really doing a transformational work in our heart. But when we sin, we come to God and we confess that sin and then we demonstrate that we have repented by what? By not sinning again or by not sinning as often. Or you, you see the progression. If you know somebody today and you see them five years from now and they had a problem with take your pick, whatever the habitual sin is, five years from now, they shouldn't be doing it as much, if at all. Isn't that amazing? When you see somebody who has a problem with alcohol, for example, and they confess the sin and they repent of the sin, and then what do you see? Five years later, they're still in a bar getting drunk every night? That, that's not repentance. That's saying, I'm sorry I got caught, not I'm sorry for my bad behavior and God, I want to change. But one of the things that Martin Luther called on the Catholic Church to repent of is he said, look, I mean, the, the, at that point, the church was literally selling what they called indulgences. Look, we know you're going to sin anyway, so give us a gift to the church, quote unquote, and we'll forgive your indulgence before you commit the sin. It's kind of like these uh, energy credits that the state governments, you know, sell right now. We know you're going to be a gross polluter, so buy the energy credit and we're okay with it. It's crazy. Now, obviously, the, the, the thing about Martin Luther that we have to pay attention to is it's not like the church just kind of went swimming along for 1,500 years with the Catholic priest kind of controlling everything and, and the, the peasantry not being able to read scripture on their own and the literacy was really high anyway. I mean, it's not like he was the first guy to say, hey, I think we have a problem here. But what happened, though, is that he actually took some of those concerns and put them into, you know, the 95 Theses. And by the way, I've mentioned this every year, but I mention it again. Him nailing something to the door of the church at Wittenberg, it's not that people didn't do that. I mean, that was kind of the email, if you will, of the day. You know, they were posting about something that's going on in town or something happening at the church. They would post it there. That's why he posted 
these theses there. What made this different was the fact that he had 95 different beefs with the church. And was it four years later at the Diet of Worms or whatever they said, Council of Trent? They said, no, we're standing by this. There might have been a couple of changes. But it's amazing because the Catholic Church really had to kind of go through, uh, you know, we're no longer the Catholic as in common church. And the Protestant Reformation um, literally was shaped by the ideas of Martin Luther and, and what he did. I mean, in terms of, like, take, for example, the printing press, you know, the, the, um, the, the different Bible translators, those who were motivated to get the Bible into the language of the people. That was a direct result of Martin Luther and the Protestant Reformation. And it's what we take for granted, the fact that a guy like Greg Harrison through the Bible tells us how many different languages that they're able to promote and teach God's word in. Thank Martin Luther for that. We look at the Protestant Reformation and I want to get into a couple of specifics about Martin Luther and the questions he had of the Catholic Church, the 95 Theses, and then what happened to Martin Luther. Because quite frankly, when you look at the progression after 1517, it's not like Martin Luther wanted to start a revolution, but he wound up starting one. What wound up happening to him and how has it impacted the church around the world? We're going to talk about that coming up next as the bottom line continues. You can protect against market volatility without investing all your money into bonds. Wilson Financial has simply better alternatives. The last 12 months, there has been almost $1.7 trillion invested in investment-grade bonds. This move to safety locks up money for a long time of guaranteed low returns. Why? Market volatility. Well, my comment is why go with low earnings for a long time when you can get great earnings with a solid real estate-backed investment paying you 6% over the next three years. After three years, you can invest in another option, or you can do what most of our investors do and reinvest in another one of our new exclusive 6% accounts. This strategy gives you the best of both options without settling for many years of low returns. Our 3D Money 6% account pays you great interest while you're not subjecting yourself to market volatility. Call 800-696-9970, 800-696-9970, or visit kbrightradio.com slash Wilson Financial and ask about Dennis Wilson's exclusive real estate-backed 6% investment account. Wilson Financial Services, for simply better alternatives. Welcome back to The Bottom Line. I'm Roger Marsh. Super Tuesday edition of the program, but we're not talking politics today. It's a Super Tuesday simply because it is Reformation Day, and this is the day, if you are part of the Catholic Church, this is a day that altered the Catholic Church uh, forever, 506 years ago, but also this is a day that kind of gave birth to uh, all the different denominations that we have, and some would argue that that's not necessarily a good thing. In all honesty, I don't think that was the goal of Martin Luther with his 95 Theses. The History Channel said he defiantly nailed a copy of these Theses to the door of the Church. Um, You know, in all honesty... I don't think it was so dramatic. Um, He really just wanted to say, look, this is an academic discussion that I would like to see us have in the seminary. Um, They they basically, they were, you know, one of the things that I, I, the reason why I think this, this stood so, uh, it stood out so much is the fact that when you look at each of the theses, what you don't see is, you know, a lot of times when people are making demands, right? You've got this revolutionary group and we demand this, we want that. You see this with college students and climate activists and, you know, whatever. Uh, What you see in Luther's words, I think that was so disarming for the church at the time, was the fact that there's a great level of humility. That there was a thoughtful, even academic tone. 
I love hearing the conversations with people who listen to the Bottom Line Show and say, I love the guests that you bring on or the conversations that we have because it gives me an opportunity to have a dialogue with people I know who are either skeptics or maybe they're, you know, they're, they're, they're a little stoic in their ways and we can actually bring reason to what they're doing. I mean, I've maintained this from day one here on the Bottom Line Show. I don't want this to be outrage radio. I mean, outrage radio sells. I'm as mad as you know what, and we're going to get mad about this and mad, 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 mad. Are you mad too? Let's call. If you're not mad, I'll say something that'll make you mad. Who has time? And I realize even in Christian radio, that it does have a certain, you know, appeal, I guess, to some people. But at the end of the day, I, I, someone was asking me, the first year we were on the air, what, how do you describe your program? And I said, quite frankly, if there's a reason to get mad, I want to give you a good reason. I, we, we shouldn't be upset just for the sake of being upset because we as individuals in this modern social media world can get really knocked off our pins pretty easily. Doesn't that just make you mad that, take your pick. You know, I mean, there's so many different issues, whether it's the sanctity of human life or politics or international government, whatever it is. And we can stay mad about COVID and we can stay mad about progressivism without realizing that the work that we are called to do, first and foremost, job one, is to go into all the world and preach the gospel. The gospel meaning that we're sinful fallen people, we're stuck in the sinful world, and we are doomed to hell apart from a savior. And the savior's name is Jesus Christ. His word is living and active, sharper than a double-edged sword. It separates fact from fiction, truth from lies. It helps us to see soul and spirit. It helps us to understand who we are as sinful people and why we need a savior. And then the blood of Jesus Christ allows us to confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead so that the purpose of the death of Jesus on the cross is that his death gives us life. His blood being shed for us pays the penalty for our sin in the same way that those first animals who wound up giving their skins literally to Adam and Eve so they'd have clothing, that's when God began the blood covenant and establishing that it would take that blood of those animals to cover the sinfulness, in that case, the nakedness of Adam and Eve. That was more than just uh, more than just a, a physical reality. It was very highly symbolic. The fact that the Passover lamb was uh, to be consecrated every Passover by the Jewish community, God's chosen people. This is how they were delivered from the captivity of Pharaoh. And the whole let my people go issue do your Passover meal. This is the lamb and the, 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 the unleavened bread, et cetera, et cetera. But take the blood of the lamb and spray it on the doorpost of the home. So when the, um, when the angel of death passes over, literally, and sees the blood on the doorpost, they keep going. They're not going to take the firstborn son, the firstborn male of every household that doesn't have the blood. If there's blood there, they're going to keep passing over. And that blood covers their sin. But in the same way that the blood of Jesus, or the blood of the Passover lamb, covered the sin under the old covenant, covenant, the new covenant says the blood washes us clean. It doesn't just cover us and give us kind of a pass. It literally pays our debt and washes the sin clean as if we had never sinned. Think of the word justified, just as if I had never sinned. That's the way I was taught. And so Martin Luther coming up on the, the 95 theses and just saying, hey, wait a minute. Okay, well, the theses were then, they were copied. I guess the printing press was starting to work. 
They were distributed all throughout Germany. They made their way to Rome. The Catholic Church got a hold of them. The Vatican did. In 1518, he was summoned to Augsburg, which was a city in southern Germany. And that's where they went for, uh, they had an imperial assembly. They call it a diet. I mean, it's just so weird when you hear about the diet of worms and you're like, ooh, that sounds awful. But it was just a gathering. Um, they had a debate that went on for three days. It was Luther going up against the cardinal at the time, Cardinal Thomas Kajahan, and there was no agreement. The, the cardinal defended the church's use of indulgences. Luther refused to recant, so he went back to Wickenburg. And on November 9th, 1518, the Pope condemned him. Basically, now, now, check this out. We look at the 95 Theses and think they were pretty fair criticism of what the church had become at that point. But the church's response at that point, I say the capital C Roman Catholic Church, was that since Martin Luther did not agree with the church's teachings, that he should be condemned. A year later, there were a series of commissions that were convened to actually examine his teaching. The first papal commission found them to be heretical. The second merely stated that Luther's writings were, quote, scandalous and offensive to pious ears. Finally, uh, in July of 1520, it was Pope Leo X who issued a public decree called a papal bull that concluded that Martin Luther's propositions were, in fact, heretical, gave Luther 120 days to recant in Rome. Luther, of course, refused. So on January 3rd, 1521, the Pope excommunicated Martin Luther from the Catholic Church. Now, how would you like to be studying for the priesthood or anything in your career, whatever, and you find some systematical errors in the way your company does business? And then you bring them up to the CEO and the CEO decides instead of saying, yeah, you're right, we should change these things to the assembly line or whatever. The CEO not only says, no, you're wrong, but and it doesn't go along with company policy, but oh, by the way, you're fired and we'll never rehire you. Isn't that crazy? April 17th, 1521, Martin Luther appeared before the Diet of Worms in Germany. They asked him to recant and he did not recant. And this is when he... Uh, uh, then gave a rather defiant statement in his testimony where he said, here I stand, God help me, I can do no other. On May the 25th, it was the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V who signed an edict against Luther, ordering, and <laughs> I still love the way people used to think in the 16th century, if we burn his writings, then no one will ever see them. And so literally, they ordered his writings to be burned. So Martin Luther went to the town of Eisenach for the next year and he then began the translation of the New Testament into German. It took him 10 months to complete it. He returned to Wittenberg in 1521. The Reformation movement had literally begun because of his writings and basically it had gotten to the point where it had gotten bigger than him. Um, there were many who... Uh, made it a theological cause. Others, it became a political cause. I mentioned it had a huge impact on the entire society. Uh, in 1521, there was a rebellion known as the Peasants' War that made its way across Germany. And quite frankly, can you blame them? Can you imagine being stuck in some class warfare type of thing where the rich people have all the good stuff and you're part of the peasants that don't have anything, and then when you realize that you could have had a lot more, but they were just keeping it from you? 
I, I could see why they rose, took up arms. Now, one of the things that uh, Luther pointed out to the church that was heretical was the fact that they, he said, hey, look, you are basically basing your pope and the papal ascension here on Peter, who was a married man. Why do you force your priests to uh, become what he calls uh, clerically celibate? So in 1525, he married a woman named Catherine of Bora. She, a former nun, they had five children. And, uh, and it, it seemed like it was going to be a, a great rest of their life together. Um, but here's the thing. Once the Reformation really caught fire, it kind of transcended Martin Luther. It became bigger than him. And uh, at the end of his life, uh, there are some people who say, well, you know, Martin Luther really wasn't all that great because you should hear what he had to say. I'll talk about those later life decisions and what we can learn from them as well. Coming up next as the bottom line continues. You know, I'll never forget the moment I met my grandson, Isaac. It actually wasn't in the delivery room. That was the first time I held him. But the first time I actually met Isaac was when I went with his mother to her ultrasound appointment. And the ultrasound technician showed us a picture of that eight-week-old baby in the womb. Uh, you know, I encourage you to contact Preborn right now and make a donation to provide that same experience for another family. Maybe there's someone in your family who's expecting a child right now. They've had the ultrasound. You've seen the picture. You've heard the heartbeat. And you think, wow, how can I bless someone else. Studies show that 83% of the women who go to a pre-born clinic and see that ultrasound either choose to become mothers and raise the children on their own or release the child for adoption. It cuts the risk of, it cuts the rate of abortion dramatically. But your donations are necessary right now to get more ultrasound machines into pre-born health clinics. Give a gift online when you go to kbrightradio.com and click the banner that says pre-born. Cute little baby there wrapped up in a blanket. Or give a gift over the phone. 833-850-BABY, 833-850-BABY, that's 833-850-2229. Call Preborn, make a donation. Every ultrasound machine could do 250 ultrasounds per year, so give a gift right now. Welcome back to this special edition of the Bottom Line Show. I'm Roger Marsh. It is Reformation Day 2023. It is the 506th anniversary of Martin Luther nailing those 95 theses to the wall of the church at Wittenberg. The, the door, anyway. And during that time, of course, he went before the Diet of Worms. They asked him to recant. He wouldn't. Um, they banished him from the seminary. Three years later, Pope Leo kicked him out of the church altogether. Uh, by 15... 21 though the reformation had really caught steam and it had become more of a political movement and so martin luther kind of uh, you know kind of backed away from it um, he got married to a woman who was a former nun they both had an issue with the idea that the priests and the nuns had to remain celibate they didn't see anywhere in scripture that that was necessary other than the apostle paul saying well you know if, if you burn with lust i guess you should get married otherwise you're really better fit for kingdom service if you don't get married he and Catherine had five children, and uh, as he got, you know, the, once the Reformation kind of got out of his hands, um, as he got older, like a lot of people do when we get older, he got a little more strident in his views. Um, he went so far as to declare that he thought the Pope was the Antichrist, which is a, a bit out of left field. And then also, um, he, he was also, you know, this is the new covenant, this is the new church, so therefore the Jews of the day didn't have any place in it, and that, well, that's not exactly true um and he also he said look i don't condemn polygamy because if they did it in the old testament i mean it's in the bible so why not so i mean you know as he got older he died on february 18th of 1546 
he died at the age of only 63 years old. But as he got old, he got a little old and cranky and cantankerous. But here's the issue that we're looking at today with regard to the Reformation. What have we done in the church today? Do we need a new Reformation? I mean, there are a lot of people who are looking at evangelicalism, for example, and seeing how much has been mixed with Christian nationalism, as it's called. There's a podcast called The Holy Podcast. Phil Vischer hosts it. That actually has been taking a lot of heat recently. They, uh, during the Trump administration, they found an audience with people who were Christians who didn't like Donald Trump. But now they're saying, hey, we're taking a candid, clear, right to the roots look at American Christianity. And people are pointing out the fact they're saying, hey, wait a minute, um, Christianity is universal. So why are you so bent on trying to make American Christianity what you want? I mean, isn't that part of the problem? Is that you've narrowed Christianity down to something that's only an American phenomenon? I mean, the beauty of the body of Christ is the body of Christ is universal. Not universal in terms of different religions and different faiths, but it's open to anyone. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him, whosoever, man, woman, child, any ethnicity, any socioeconomic background, any country, communist, free, doesn't matter. The gospel is available to all who will believe it. And the gospel is you're a sinner. You live in a sinful, fallen world. There's a holy God who loves you, who created you, who wants you to be in relationship with him, meaning we serve him. But he and his holiness will not dwell with us in our sinfulness. So therefore, it's incumbent upon someone to do something. We can't make ourselves holy, so God made his son fully God and fully man, to walk the earth for us, to pay the penalty for our sin, to, to, to die the death that we could never die. I mean, we could never die enough times to pay for our sin against God. But Jesus Christ did it once and for all. So on this Reformation Day, when people are out celebrating ghouls and goblins and things of that nature, think that the ultimate celebration tonight will be celebrating Jesus' triumph over death and hell. Celebrating good versus evil with good winning. We may experience a lot of battles in this life, but Jesus won the war for you and for me. That's the bottom line.